Just a reminder about where we've been. The plan behind the Burning Questions series was to be invitational, to allow for deeper connections in faith, to appreciate that you have questions on your heart that will shape our time together. And while I am new to you and you are new to me as a community, it serves as a window one into the other about where we've been and where we can go, where our hopes and our longing are, what our identity is, and who we feel called and equipped to be. These have been connections over Scripture about the work of God in the world, but above all, they've intended to be authentic. I'm not going to try and put on airs. I'll share my sense of who God is in my story and who we, I believe we are called to be as a church. And I invite that same authenticity from you. One of the simple truths is that when Jesus preached, he was often confronted with questions, especially by those who knew him best. When Jesus would teach in front of a crowd, the Gospels tell us that he would often go back to another room and the disciples would just go, we didn't get it. Can, can you explain what you just explained? And all the teachers in the room go, I know that kid, okay. It's a part of the learning process to be open with our questions and to share them one with another. Now, I just want to preface this by saying, I've been saying that Monday mornings after the service, my door's just open to you. Email, text, drop by, whatever you'd like to do. That is still an invitation, and I am not hiding from you tomorrow, but tomorrow morning, I'll be in here. From 9 to 12, I have the opportunity to partner with Congregation Beth Ami and share in their Rosh Hashanah service and provide them some technical support as they use our space for their high holy days. It'll be a gift to me and to them, uh, but if you want to reach out, I'll be in after lunch uh, tomorrow as well. Last week, we talked about our understanding of Scripture uh, and how I see the Bible, how I use the Bible in my personal and professional life. This week, we're talking about the church as a body. And I want to start there. We'll get to the, the, the brave, where'd Jen go? The brave part of the sermon a little later. It's coming, I promise. But I want to talk about images for understanding the church with a capital C, who we are called to be, and how Valencia United Methodist Church is a part of that great system. Last week, I used a word to talk about an understanding of the church, institution. Institution is one of those words that we front load and we have a sense of. Institutions have a singular expected voice that they have discerned, that they have voted on. And so when truth is shared in an institution, the expectation is, is that everybody from some higher authority, be it a CEO in a company or a lead pastor in a church, on down the line understands what that means and falls in line and follows suit. That's how culture sees churches, by the way, that they're all just manifestations of personality of pastor and that they serve a singular common vision and that it is impossible to separate their beliefs from their policies. Institutional churches have been a modality of Christianity for a long time. We call it Christendom, combining the ideology of kingdoms with the reign of Christ. The church that reigned with the Holy Roman Empire and indeed the Holy Catholic Church for so many years, even through the Protestant Reformation, we have had institutions that are buildings and places that house people of common expectation. I don't know that the institutional church is the most helpful model for understanding what Christ meant or what God calls us to be. Because I don't need to put myself in a position where what I say becomes law and that you all are just expected to follow along. I am and will be a shepherd in your midst and will care for your spiritual needs and community. But my word is not gospel. The gospel is the gospel. I'll share my heart with you week in and week out, my prayers for you daily. 
But this is not a singular, expected voice where belief has become policy. Another model for church is the entertainment model. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, this is because we live so close to L.A. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Not just showiness, not just fashion, not just uh, pomp and circumstance. The entertainment model of church is a consumer model of church. And in the same way, you might walk out of a play that you don't enjoy, or you might choose not to go to a movie that doesn't appeal to you, we can make choices about church life in a way that deals with the issue of entertainment. Am I enjoying what's happening at church? Does the sermon speak to me? Do I like the music? Do I like the people? And in the same way some of you have opinions about the comfort of the seats and the snacks at the movie theaters here in this valley, people begin to build positions about the lives of churches and whether or not it's for them. Now, not all is wrong with the entertainment model. The role of the entertainment model that I see being quite scriptural comes from the prophets that say, is there a word from the Lord for me today? We all have some level of self-centeredness when it comes to a relationship with God and the church. We long to know that God has something to say about our story, our experience, our individual lives. And the entertainment model honors that. There should be something that speaks to me in the life of the church. The problem in the shortcoming of the entertainment model is when you feel like you disagree or you're no longer entertained, it is easy then to move on from that. Another model for church, the warehouse. When I think of warehouses, I think of places like Sam's Club and Costco, right? You have a membership card because you paid your dues, but it's a place where you go to load up on things in bulk that you need for your life. The goods and services and then the just odd things that they have samples for. Church can be like that. Loading up on the essentials that you need in your spiritual pantry and occasionally experience something just a little bit new that you would not have normally bought, but you're tempted because you got to try it nice and hot. That's some people's spiritual experience. I didn't know I could try it on that way. One of my mentors, Reverend Jerry Larson from Los Altos United Methodist Church, whom I worked with, talked about not just the warehouse model, but a, 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 an image of the Pony Express, that we are all on some grand and hurried adventure in life, and the church is that place where we stop to get water and a feed bag and to, to just feel refreshed so that we can continue on the journey. It's not the destination. It's not the stopping point. It's where you come to pick the things that you need for your life and to go out. Now, one of the gifts of that model is to say there are a variety of ways that any one church can meet the needs of the individual. We're not monolithic in our approach to what spirituality ought to be. There are Bible studies. There are small groups. There is two different types of worship. There's missions opportunities to engage in. A variety of ways, not unlike Sam's Club and Costco. But the issue there is, is this idea of membership that somehow becomes incomplete. And I know that Methodists count members, but I get stuck behind an idea that says, are, are you a card-carrying member of this church? you have the right credentials? If I asked you and quizzed you about this church, would you give the right answer? It's not a model that speaks to me in its entirety. Another model is that of family. We are now getting closer to Andy's sandbox. I like the image of the family of God because it's an identity that goes beyond membership. I have a Costco card, but I am not Costco. 
But what I can tell you is, is my kids can say, yes, we're Christian, yes, we're teens, yes, we go to Cal Poly Pomona, Castaic High School, all these places that are a part of our identity. But at the end of the day, we are Maddox. And there are things in our house that are not tolerated, not because they don't line up with Scripture or any other cultural expectation. There are conversations we have on the couch and at the dinner table where we say, friends, that's not the kind of thing we do. That's not who the Maddox are. And our kids know that there's an identity beyond themselves that connects them with an extended family. People who they know and who they can know care about them regardless of their position in life or their relationships with others. There are people that are family who love them, who pray for them, who know them, who honor them and receive them simply because of who they are by their blood and birth. The church is like that. At the end of the day, we can say to one another, friends, we don't behave like that because we carry the name of Christ. We are Christians. And that means we are called to more. There are times where spiritual blood can, in fact, be thicker than water, but the simple truth is that the water of baptisms usher us into a deeper relationship with family that we simply cannot lose. The final image of church I just want to lift up as a part of our seedbed understanding for what the church means is the body of Christ. It's the biblical image. To be either the bride of Christ or the body of Christ, either way, we have this physical manifestation in our world. We are incarnate in the way that Christ came to be incarnate. The body of Christ is an active one. This is not a place that somehow becomes a museum. Lord, save me. If the church for Madeline's grandkids is nothing more than a museum where people come and say, let me tell you how people used to do it, how they used to experience God, how they used to talk about things like character and identity, we will have failed to be the body of Christ because we have not lived in this generation as Christ's offering to the world. But the power of the image of the body of Christ, Paul will say, is an inclusive challenge. Hands don't get to say to the feet, you're not welcome here because you don't do what I do. Eyes don't get to say to the mouth, you're not welcome here because you don't act the way I do. Your sense is not the same as mine. What you see, what you engage with is not identical to me. You are different and therefore I cast you out. Bodies don't get that option. The church as the body is inclusive and we are not rejected based on our role. Now, if you look at the sermon notes, this was a section of the sermon that I was then going to talk about what's going on in the Methodist church. And I practiced this sermon midweek, and it went about four and a half hours, and so I said, something's got to give. <laughs> These people have Discover VUMC to get to. There's donuts waiting. It's going to be hot later. We've got to get them out of here. So come back in two weeks. Some of you had great questions about where the United Methodist Church is and what you hear on the news. I will address those in two weeks' time come back. But I want to take one of my favorite images of who we're called to be as the body of Christ and share that as our scripture time today. It deals with this idea of approaching God's throne, coming and gathering together because of the grace of God in our lives. And it's from the book of Hebrews, and it reads in this way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
in Jesus Christ. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance or full confidence of faith with hearts that are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here's my favorite part. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What would it look like if church was the place where you came to be expected to stir other people up and to be stirred? What would it look like if the work of the church is the body of Christ was not to figure out who's got it right and who's got it wrong, who is the the distant alien and the one we don't talk about, who are the people on the outside looking in and listening in and watching through the window, but rather if we said we are a people who are constantly stirring up one another to love and to good works, to relationship and to the building of the kingdom of God, what would that look like? Meeting together is encouraged. We are called to be together. One of the great questions from the burning questions then is if this is the vision of church, stirring people to great love, why then do we see such hypocrisy and such hate? Well, here's what I need to do. I firmly believe that so much of that is rooted in an institutional identity. To say that the people online, the people on newscasts, the people who are given the loudest pulpits and microphones somehow speak for all of us and we are accountable then to their language and their patterns of behavior. I disagree with that model. This church as a body and an incarnation is not a perfect thing. It never has been. At the first service, some of the earliest members of our church who've been members of this church for 47 years came down and greeted me and said, this is the anniversary of us joining 47 years ago. In 47 years that they've been here, the church has never been perfect. And that's okay. Because if we are truly living out as the incarnation of God, we have to allow for the fact that we require the grace, forgiveness, and mercy of God as surely as any one individual does. There will be times where we do not get it right. And there have certainly been times in our past where we did not get it right, where we have been wrong by our choices and our direct actions or by our indirect actions and lack of that. Hypocrisy, this idea of two-facedness, is rooted in the idea that the expectation that another has of you because you carry the name of Christ And I'm here to tell you today that if the experience of the world is that people who carry the name of Christ are the most hateful and closed-off people, we have failed to be the incarnate body. That's the church, called to be the body of Christ, the family of God, living into revealed truth and God's Spirit enlivening us, stirring us up to love and good works. Where's Jen? And now the brave section. Most of the questions, if you were to group them together, the largest percentage was on human sexuality. It's the largest part of the debate in what's going on in United Methodism and in church cultures around our country and around our world. Now, again, I'm open to your questions, to your disagreements, but I want to be clear in my answers of those questions that have come in 
and then eventually my own place in this story. The questions that came to my desk deal with the tension between faith, the legitimacy of Scripture, and a heart's passion for God's people in our midst. Some of them deal with the deep question of what do we make of something like same-sex marriage? What do we make of uh, uh, the fact that I have members of my family who do not feel comfortable in church? They are powerful questions that really all orbit around deeper questions about who we're called to be as the church together. Somebody said, I want a more, I want a clearer understanding of the scriptural positions on this. Because all we hear in most times are those that condemn issues of human sexuality. Is there more to the Bible than just that? The condemnation scriptures in Scripture are about seven texts, about 15 sentences total. The Old Testament ones in the King James English have this kind of model. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. Most of the references in the New Testament, in the Pauline sections, have to do with human sexuality or homosexuality falling on a list of vices and fallenness, perverts, homosexuals, sodomite sexual abusers. Seven verses in the whole of our Bible that have driven a conversation about humanity and about how we might be human to one another. And classically, the church has addressed those seven texts in really one of two ways. One is historical hermeneutics. What did it mean in its context? What are they trying to say? Do they mean homosexuals like the gays I know? Great question. And that hermeneutics piece tends to point to an idea that at least in the New Testament, one of the big concerns had to do with cultic religious practice in the Roman Empire. And that while Paul says things like uh, issues about things like women in leadership, it was dealing with a specific case, not with broadly the work of women in the church. Or that this conversation about these perverts, homosexuality, sodomites, and sexual abusers fall more into cultic practice and a mistreatment of other human individuals. That's the historical piece. The other major tract in this has to do uh, with what I like to call the but whatabouts, right? You take the seven condemnation texts and you say, well, I'm really uncomfortable with those, but there are other texts that I'm likewise uncomfortable with that we don't seem to emphasize, right? Shellfish, woven fabrics, tattoos. What then do we do? And oftentimes the intersection and conversation between New Testament scholars and Old Testament scholars gets into the weeds about, well, in the grace of Jesus Christ, we are not behoven to the Levitical literature and the text and everything else. And yet these texts about human sexuality have a stranglehold on the human expression and experience. For my time this morning, in light of your questions, what I want to do is say, let's do a little bit more than proof texting. It's not worth my time or the energy, but if that's your follow-up question, we can do that together to go line by line, text by text, and somehow unpack it in a way that should somehow make folks make more sense of it. For me, instead, what I'd rather do is share about the story God tells in Scripture from creation to Abraham to Jesus and beyond. In creation, we get this story of humankind being established in the image of God. And when it comes to issues of gender identity and sexuality, it becomes the kind of text that we lean into and say, God created man and woman, and maybe that should be it. The problem with that interpretation of the, Christian, or the creation story in Genesis is that all of the dichotomies, the on-offs, one or the others, that are listed in the creation story in Scripture, they're not complete. Light and darkness. 
And yet you and I have an experience of things like dawn and dusk, sunset, sunrise, the sun goes behind clouds. There are shades to light in our world. We have creatures in the sea and creatures of the land, and yet what gets complicated is when we have amphibious creatures who can exist in multiple worlds. Nothing about the creation story is about creating simple pairs of dichotomy that are always unbroken truths. Incidentally, I mentioned shellfish earlier. Do you know the principal reason that the Talmud says that uh, shellfish is an issue in Jewish teaching? It's because they're fish that have legs. And that seems to be a very complicated part of trying to understand where those fish belong. Why would you put legs on a sea creature? Interesting, interesting stuff. Abraham. As a father, I read the story of Abraham very differently than I did as a younger man. The invitation to sacrifice Isaac. The confidence that in the promise of God to make of Isaac great nations who would be as many as the sands on the sea and who would be a light to shine to the kingdoms of the world and yet to realize that God then asks him to murder the boy. Isaac says, where is our sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide, misdirecting the question, knowing that the sacrifice was intended to be his son. And yet in the power of that moment, he hears his name as the knife is to fall, and it is then that he is stopped, and there is a provision for their sacrifice. My big problem with the history of the church around the conversation of human sexuality and issues of LGBTQIA conversations has been that in large part there are a number of churches who have asked faithful parents to be an Abraham to their own children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, sisters, brothers, or even parents when sexuality is introduced as a conversation point in their homes. In my opinion, church cannot be, if it's the incarnational body of Christ, a place that says your family ought to be divided by this issue. God provides the sacrifice needed. It does not come at the expense of our children. This Old Testament image of God who is challenging and creating is then manifest in Jesus. A Jesus who lives amongst sinners, who touches the sick and the lame and the broken, who invites adulterers into his experience. Yes, he invites them to sin no more, but he invites them into a deeper relationship of God through him. And then you get to the New Testament church, the early church. My favorite passage on this comes from the book of Acts because it deals with food, and I'm a foodie. Peter's taking a, a nap, and in the midst of that, he receives a prophetic dream from God where a, a sheet comes down from the heavens, and on it are all of the Levitical foods that are forbidden. And God says, take and eat. And Peter's response to this vision is, oh, no, 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 I can't. I'm a good Jewish boy. I know the work of the institutional church. I know the rules and expectations. I cannot and I will not. To which the voice of God says, do not call unclean that which I have called clean. This interaction, this dream, this story that's included in our scriptures is intended for Peter to have his eyes open to the work of God in the Gentile community because he was firmly convinced out of his calling as a Jewish man by a Jewish rabbi named Jesus that the work of Christ was unique to the chosen people of God. And yet God was stirring the waters, stirring the spirit of the Gentile people and inviting them into a deeper relationship. The Spirit of God was at work, and Peter needed to see and to recognize it. 
And so these Levitical restrictions that were a part of diet and a part of patterns of life are in no small way lifted if we can begin to see where God is at The difference in the tension that Jesus has is in the difference between creating progeny. That Abraham's promise won't be fulfilled just by having children. It will be by bearing the fruit of compassion, justice, love, and kindness. But marriage is complex. It's complex in the Old Testament and in the New. I joked in the first service, I can barely keep up with Camille. Why would I want to be like Jacob with two wives and two concubines? There's no way. The patterns and practices of what it means to be faithful to one another in a marriage setting are are rampant in our scriptures. In fact, Jesus says far more about issues of divorce and faithfulness and fidelity than he does about human sexuality. But I think when it comes to a question of marriage, we need to realize that our scriptures want us to consider our character and our faithfulness. It is entirely possible for us, despite our backgrounds, and indeed our sexuality, to find ourselves in a pattern of mutuality, of faithfulness, and of love. And that will continue to stand against a cultural practice of lust, and of vice, and abuse. A conversation, a nuanced conversation about sexuality in the church is not somehow throwing the Bible away and saying all sin is good sin, let's just let it ride. We are still called to be the incarnate body of Christ and to be fruit bearers of the gospel. So let me close with a little bit of my perspective. I can be honest about my bias and about how that's changed over time. To realize that there was a time in my story where my position on human sexuality was very, very different. That it was shaped by an experience of God's people, by a study of God's word, and by an invitation for God to work on me. That does not mean then that I'm fully done or that I couldn't be wrong but I'm comfortable with where I've come. One of the first things that attracted me to coming Valencia United Methodist Church was of the seven things we know, the first on that list is all means all. That there would be a reality in the midst of the life of this church that we would participate fully with one another regardless of our race, our creed, our cultural origin and background, and even our human sexuality. That all means all is a way of saying we are called to reach out to all of those who feel this fracture in the human experience between their lives and the life that God has called them to. For some people, that might mean counsel about the relationships and patterns of life that have been a part of their story, and that is true of heterosexuals and of homosexuals. Your story has value. We all have baggage. We all come to the table at this church knowing these things to be true, but if all means all, It's an opportunity that one of my convictions is that that is a process of full participation in leadership, in calls to ministry, in engagement in married life, and participation in parenthood and in the life of this church. Because the history of the church, one of the sins we need to confess is that we've been too good at losing and silencing voices because of our experience of morality. Not allowing black preachers to serve white pulpits was a sin because the moral center of those racist white churches said blacks do not experience the word of God in the same way that whites do. Silencing the voices of female pastors by male pastors who say they are not allowed by the moral code that we have to lead in worship is an atrocity. 
And so too do I feel like we're at one of those thresholds. To be able to say that we lose and silence voices and have for the last few generations out of an inability to live faithfully into the idea that all means all. For me, the arc of Scripture goes from inclusion or from exclusion to inclusion. The very first parts of our story in the Bible are about intimate relationships with just one person, then two, then a family, then a network of families and a chosen people. But even that is broken apart and extends out into the Gentile world and then is brought back together in such a way that the hope of the Messiah in Jesus Christ can be transformative for them. And then in Jesus, you get a launched opportunity for him to serve not just the chosen, but those whom the world treats as dogs and Samaritans and the cast asides and the unloved and unwanted. And that pattern of inclusion moves into the work of Paul. He says, in Christ there is neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, male nor female. We are all a part of God's story. So if I'm going to see myself in God's story and being included in it, the one thing I need to be careful of is to know that if God's going to use me with my vices, with my sinful patterns of life, that God has a place for each of you and each of those you think that God might not. Because at the end of the day, I believe the work of the church is about meeting the broken and the least and the lost. A week ago, in this worship center, we used this baptismal font to baptize Hayden Stauffer. And in that time, you all took prayers of orientation that said, we love you, you are a part of God's family, we will pray for you, and we will partner with you in a way that leads to life eternal. It's the covenant that Hayden's parents make, and it is the work of the church in the prayer that we offer over him. I believe that that baptismal identity in Methodism is essential and inalienable. That's why we baptize infants, not when they've grown up to adults to be able to prove themselves worthy of the gospel. And you need to hear me say that there will not come a day where I will turn my back or God's love on Hayden. We prayed that we wouldn't. And I mean that, that it has, no matter who he chooses to love or who he chooses to be, he's already God's. That was true of my baptism. That's true of yours. God is a part of the human experience. We will not ask our families and our community to sacrifice the value of other human individuals around this question. That's the work of the church. That is how we are the incarnate body of God. Join me in a moment of prayer.